No, they're not absolutely correct, and I don't care. I, I have to stress that in my view, the ancient Egyptian priesthood was not staffed by ale-retentive bureaucrats. I'm sure that, that there are academics who can find a, a dozen uh, reasons why uh, the resemblance of the temples of Angkor to the pattern of the constellation of Draco is accidental and a coincidence and can be explained in all sorts of other ways. I'm not required to be encyclopedic. In Heaven's Mirror, there is no representation whatsoever of recent carbon dates for Tiwanaku. I simply didn't discuss it in there. And I don't think that my arguments are ever going to be successfully destroyed by nitpicking. Welcome to another episode of Wetwired. This is premium episode 12, The Man from Atlantis. In this episode, we're joined by archaeologist Steph Holmhofer for a conversation about Graham Hancock's recent Netflix series, Ancient Apocalypse. Deep in humanity's forgotten past, before the end of the last Ice Age, Stone Age humans shared the planet with a much more advanced star-worshipping civilization. Through their knowledge of the constellations, this unnamed and forgotten society scientists were able to accurately predict that a planet-wide catastrophic flood was about to unfold that would all but wipe out humanity. By their ascendant technology and possibly some luck, a few members of this advanced society survived. Those remnants took it upon themselves to share their knowledge with the more primitive humans who remained. They began a planet-wide campaign, setting sail for the most far-flung corners of the Earth, and to help set the foundations for the rebirth of humanity. At least this is the story that Graham Hancock has been telling the millions of viewers who've watched his Netflix docuseries, Ancient Apocalypse. And to talk about all this with us, we're joined this week by Steph Holmhofer. She's a bioarchaeologist currently at the University of Alberta. Welcome, Steph. It's good to have you here. Welcome on. Hello. Thank you for having me here. And so is, is, um, is there anything that you'd like to add, to add to your background that you'd like people to know before we, before we start chatting? Um, I'm, I've been an archaeologist for a long time, a lot longer than uh, a lot of people I think realize, but I've been an archaeologist in Canada for a long time. I've worked in Europe. Um, I don't do bioarch so often anymore. Oh, okay. See, my stuff is dated. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. Um, I mean, it still periodically comes up and, uh, you know, at, at request of, of nations, um, communities that I work with, sometimes I do it for them, but for the most part, I don't do it, but it, sometimes it comes up through pseudoarch when people are talking, claiming skeletal uh, evidence for aliens or, you know, stuff like that. Um, so it's still a useful skill to have. Um, and yeah, I've, I've been a PhD student for a few years now at the University of Alberta uh, studying what I call the archaeology of highly cursed content. So you're, you're, you're covering a lot of uh, the convergence of New Age beliefs and and pseudo-archaeology and conspiracy theories sort of in this, I guess it's been called conspirituality context. And, you know, I've heard that you're, that word used a lot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Conspirituality, it, it refers to just a blend, like ideologies or beliefs based on a blend of conspiracy theories and, and New Age spirituality. Um, and it's 
it's a term that came about in 2011, but it's it's been around for a while. It's just something that people are recently beginning to recognize. Um, and my my research focus is on mostly far right conspirituality um, mm-hmm. in a historic sense, also more of a contemporary sense. But individually, New Age spirituality and conspiracy theories are an area where pseudo-archaeology pops up a lot. So it, it makes sense that they're going to both or when you blend them together into conspirituality, I should say, it, it makes sense you're going to find pseudo-arc there as well. Yeah, absolutely. The uh, we, we've we've talked a lot about far right move the far right movements or aspects of the far right movement, and specifically focusing on Christian Christian nationalism, covering like uh, people like David Barton and the Wall Builders uh, efforts that he's been making to kind of rewrite American history, and to just really to suit the narrative that they have of how they wish it was. The, uh, rather than how it actually turned out to be, which is obviously it's an ongoing process. I mean, this is a, mm-hmm. I mean, in a sense, it's kind of a conversation we have with the past where we learn more and then we are, our ideas change and then we learn more and then again, the ideas change. Yeah, exactly. Right. We only sort of know so much based on what we have at hand at that moment. And like you say, as, as more information comes to light and we learn more, our, our ideas and our theories and about the past change. It's always changing. Um, there's always, it's never static. It's, it's very dynamic. I, I want to let you know that I did prepare for our conversation by uh, reading uh, some of uh, Hancock's work and also mm-hmm. by, uh, by watching a lot of Joe Rogan. Oh God, <laughs> I'm so sorry. And, and also uh, uh, a very special collector's issue of Atlantis Rising. Oh boy. Oh, fun. <laughs> Which is a fantastic magazine. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. I, I have definitely gone through Atlantis Rising several times. And yeah, they have I, their own uh, graphic novel now, too, hey? Really? Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very long. And uh, I'm not entirely sure what it's about because it's very hard to follow. <laughs> the, the graphic novel angle, I think, is, is a lot of uh, people trying to play catch up and wondering what the kids are doing these days and how to reach this, uh, this new this demographic that by the time they get around to actually producing a product is already aged out, you know, largely of what they're looking at anyway. But we, we saw that when we were talking about Claude Rael and the Raelians, <laughs> because oh, they, uh, yeah, they produced a, uh, a graphic novel of, you know, Rael's exploits with the Elohim. And yeah, it was, mm-hmm. it was, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, basically it was just a, it was just a scene for scene retelling of the events that he describes in his first it's, book. It's pretty good as a fiction. Yeah. Yeah. That's what a lot of these things are. A lot of his stuff is pretty good as a fiction as long as he's not writing it. Jules is the more generous uh, co-host in this <laughs> podcast. I, I was just curious about the uh, about how you, you initially became interested in these topics because, like you said, mm-hmm. you you previously were were working uh, much more heavily in bioarchaeology, and from what it sounds like, you've you've changed your focus and and are really oriented toward this direction now. And I wonder what brought that about. Yeah, my master's degree was actually looking at glass beads, which is not Mm -hmm. at all related to (laughs) this stuff. Um, (laughs) Yeah, just quite a swing when I I often think back on this and I'm like, what was that moment? You know, I guess it was kind of when I started to join social media, actually, when I got really involved in Twitter and back in the, the before times of Twitter. I sort of started to meet this broader community of archaeologists and you learn about all the different things that archaeologists are focused on and and learning about and, and researching. And 
it met a small, a very small group of archaeologists who were talking about something called pseudo-archaeology. And learning from them, it suddenly kind of this light clicked on, thinking back to a lot of Discovery Channel documentaries and History Channel shows and, and whatnot that I watched as a kid or watched as an adult. I mean, who hasn't really watched an episode of Ancient Aliens just to, you know, crack jokes at it? Mm-hmm. Um, and so learning from these these archaeologists about this actual concept and more about what it is, I started to become really interested because I thought, you know, a lot of these things when I was young, even then I recognized something was just off about them. There was just something, couldn't quite put my finger on what it is. And now it's like, oh, okay, you know, they're pulling things out of context. They're changing these narratives a little bit. Um, so that, that I think, was the moment when I, I met some other archaeologists, joined this community, and got really interested in, in, in pseudoarch in general. Um, and then just over time began to realize its placement in the far right was sort of larger than what a lot of folks were realizing or, or at least talking about. Um, and it sort of seemed like this, this blank spot, um, an, an area that hadn't quite been explored enough. And that at the same time, I, I became very interested in this guy, Brother 12, who had a, a religious organization here in British Columbia in the 1920s. He was an Atlantis guy, a theosophy guy, far right conspiracy theory guy. And so that happened kind of at the same time I was realizing there's this blank area um, and so it's just sort of slowly wound my way down that path. And once you go down the rabbit hole, <laughs> there's no coming back. <laughs> it's, nope. It's a very dark rabbit hole to fall down and it's very hard to come back out of. There's almost no end to it. They, they just, it, it keeps, you realize that these, the, you start pulling on these threads and you, and, and then start realizing how just how enmeshed everything is in these things. And even sometimes even it's just a really small way, but it's still there. My own interest in both archaeology and <laughs> and in pseudo-archaeology goes all the way back to me being me in high school. And because I was in a used bookstore and I I don't know if you'd call it the, you know, had the good fortune or the misfortune to be really attracted to Chariots of the Gods. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> and I read that book, I think, when I was 16. And it had it has had a lasting impact on me. <laughs> the... Uh, not in the way Von Daniken wanted it to, probably, but the but it definitely. I mean, at first it was just this wild story and everything so fantastic and oh wow, this is incredible. I never learned this anywhere else, and you know, and then it doesn't take very long if you actually want to try to understand the background of the of the source material material he's using to find out that it's all nonsense, but it, it doesn't make it not an exciting story. I mean, Ridley Scott released Prometheus a few years ago. That's essentially the same idea. He put ancient aliens right there in the, you know, in the movie theaters <laughs> and had everybody created on the planet by this other race of people. And it just mm-hmm. sort of goes on and goes on. I mean, lots of science fiction that you wouldn't necessarily associate with it has covered this. You know, Star Trek The Next mm-hmm. Generation had a, had a story arc that involved a, a species of aliens that were responsible for seeding the the entire galaxy with humanoid humanoid life forms, you know. And then there's a secret in the genetic code that if you get everybody together, then you can learn what that is. I, this this is all the same kind of stuff. I was kind of chuckling when I was reading that introductory uh, part because a lot of that was like I almost included this as part of it, but I absolutely robbed and rewrote pretty much the original um, 
opening monologue from the the nineteen seventy eight Battlestar Galactica series. That's exactly what it was about. It was the same thing, and you know, and that and the author of uh, of that of the, that material was he was in, he's uh, Mormon, and he was inspired by Mormon texts, mm-hmm. which also has aliens. That, you know, we don't hear about that part they too do. terribly often, but yeah, that the whole thing is extraterrestrial. Yeah, Mormon texts are uh, very interesting and they're, they're very, they are very based in archaeology as well. And this idea of, of material culture, I mean, Joseph Smith finding these gold plates, these material pieces of material culture that tells the, the Mormon story, essentially. Um, and there's some interesting branches of Mormonism as well. You can find almost anything in Mormonism, ancient aliens, you can find hyperdiffusionist stuff. Um, a little bit of everything in there. I'm sure that you have seen some of Graham Hancock's most recent series. I'm wondering what what your uh, what your current thoughts on that series happen to be. You know, it was it was both surprising and not surprising. So I wasn't particularly surprised by the content um, or or the the storyline, his theory, because I'm I'm familiar with it. Um, it's stuff he's been talking about for years. Um, so I, I sort of knew what he was going to be, roughly what he was going to be talking about. Uh, but what did surprise me was the level of aggression and just like putting all that that stigmatized knowledge concept or stigmatized knowledge claims, the conspiracism at the very front. And that's, you know, one of the things I've, I've said a few times is that it, it wasn't a series about archaeology. Archaeology came second. What came first was the idea of, of archaeologists suppressing, trying to silence or censor um, Hancock, which is ironic for him to be saying he's being censored on a Netflix show or on a podcast as large as the Joe Rogan podcast. Um, that never quite makes it across to the audience. But um, that's the part that I found really surprising is just how aggressive and, and conspiracist the series ended up being. I didn't expect it that hard. I knew it would be there, but I didn't expect as much as what there was. Do you see a connection between the, uh, the, between, I mean, that really, that, that came across to me as well in the show and in, in the, uh, in his recent series that the, he really, he just started off from the beginning that he was being silenced and nobody was paying attention to his ideas and yeah, everybody's been trying to shut him down. And I, I think he, he made some remark in one of the episodes about being called a pseudo archaeologist. And he, he said that that was like calling a dolphin, a pseudo fish. <laughs> and yeah, the, but d- to me, that's that's that has a that has a very similar sort of feel to concerns about being deplatformed that you hear in the far right, and you know, and, and it's all back around again now. Obviously, with Elon Musk taking over Twitter and everybody demanding that they are requ- making demands that rec- accounts get reinstated, and and now, of course, you have these zombies coming back that have been gone for quite some time, and. What do you think about that that comparison? Is that something that is that something that resonates with you too? Yeah, definitely. I you know, I I don't think I will I will say I don't think Hancock writes for the far right. He, that's not his intended audience, but that is an audience that really his work really resonates with them. Um his his books are are cited quite frequently in in certain far right spaces, certain far right books and articles. Um and that is something else that I haven't seen Hancock or his supporters or other pseudo-archaeological authors address. 
they're very quick to say, oh, I, I'm not racist. You guys are, are being ridiculous for calling this racism. You say everything is racism, blah, blah, blah. But the fact is that his work has found a home in these spaces and it's not being addressed. It's not being condemned. Um, instead, the folks who are pointing it out are the problem. So that's something that I, I always notice. I was just reading through some stuff this morning um, where, again, his his books are, are being praised again in these very far right spaces. Um, and it just, you know, it's that idea of, of stigmatization that draws all of these folks together Um Michael Barkin talks about this concept of stigmatized knowledge claims where proof, evidence, physical evidence is not necessary because the stigmatization is the evidence. The idea of it must be true because look at how hard these archaeologists are trying to suppress it or reject it or ignore it or forget about it kind of thing. And I think that's why this show also became so popular so or, or drew such a large audience so quickly is because stigmatization brings together people mm -hmm. who aren't necessarily only interested in historical conspiracies. Anybody who's primed to view stigmatization as a signifier of truth will look at this show and be like, oh, hey, you know, some people are trying to hide this truth. There must be something to it. And it's the same for the, the far right folks who also believe, you know, they're being stigmatized in one way or another. So they must be onto something true. They're going to see what's going on with his show and and just continue to be drawn over to it. And especially because he's so vague in the show about who this actual civilization was. He doesn't give it any detailed description at all. So it kind of creates, it, it molds it into this blank slate or, or puts it on this blank slate that can now be used by anybody who's kind of just looking to create a mythical past with some form of archaeology. I mean, here's a whole series about it that they can use. I was listening to a podcast not too long ago, and uh, Dr. Ken Hoops was on there. Is that his name? Do I have his name right? John Hoops. John Hoops. That's right. I'm, I'm getting him mixed up with uh, with Ken Fetter. Um, Ken but Fetter. the But he was on there, and he was asked a, a, a similar question coming from this vein of 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 stigmatized knowledge. And the host was uh, saying that you know he'd be, he'd had this uh, this guest on, and he had this theory, and he'd written these this book, and all these things, and the and it was kind of a wild theory you know <laughs> and and he said that his the his guest's biggest complaint was that I'm intentionally leaving this guy's name out of this but th this guy's biggest yeah, yeah. complaint was that nobody in academia was taking him seriously and they wouldn't talk to him so uh, John Hoops was saying that uh that well this isn't a hypothetical because I've spoken with him <laughs> and like and it was it was just a perfect sort of you know it's like uh conflict between the perception mm -hmm. of, of knowledge being stigmatized and people refusing to engage with you. And then here we have mm -hmm. somebody who is, I mean, by all definitions, an established academician and, you know, mainstream archaeologist. And he's saying, yeah, I, I have had contact with him and this is what I told him. So I could tell this to anybody else yeah. too. And, but this stigma, uh, this, uh, this idea of the stigmatized knowledge and then that, and then seeing any sort of resistance or pushback as evidence that, you know, you're somehow on the right track. Th this is again, you know, resonance and, and other areas of not necessarily far right, but in, mm -hmm. in QAnon circles, the, the, mm -hmm. the expression is that you're over the target. That's how you know you're mm -hmm. over the target because they're shooting back at you. 
Yeah. That's taken as evidence that you're you're onto something because you're getting you're getting pushback. Yeah. If you are saying something that's getting pushback uh, or people aren't taking you seriously, then by the very fact that people aren't taking you seriously, then you must be on the right track. Exactly. It's just this constant circle around and around and around. And that's, you know, that's why we say facts don't matter. These aren't spaces where facts matter because any fact can be turned to support really any position that's being put forward. Um, It's, it, really comes down to an, an area of feelings and emotions. A lot of conspiracism is, is based on feeling and emotion anyway. Um, and yeah, it's, it's the same thing in all of this. It's just this constant, you must be onto something because look at how they're reacting. This idea of any sort of criticism actually becoming stigmatization. And it, that's not the case. We're not criticizing because we're trying to suppress. That's part of the process. That's part of weighing what has been presented and is it convincing is it conclusive enough it's not conclusive enough that's what we're trying to say that's not stigmatizing you that is just part of the process but it becomes this seen as this proof of stigmatization exactly what you're describing is something that you you can very clearly see with the way hancock presents his material he doesn't really have any patience whatsoever for for actual research or the or testing a hypothesis, he, he's got no interest in that whatsoever. I mean, it's very clear that he starts with an idea of what he just knows it's true. I mean, he says so much. He he said as much in places where he said he's guided by guided by his own intuition. Mm-hmm. That not not evidence, you know, which is exactly mm-hmm. backwards. Where we find something and then we we have some ideas about it and then we test those ideas. Mm-hmm. He he frequently talks about how. He starts with the conclusion that he knows Atlantis is there, and then he's on the hunt to find it. Yep, which is the exact opposite of what <laughs> you should be doing, and, and the exact opposite of the, the scientific method. You don't start with your conclusion. You ask a question, you look for some proof, and you re- evaluate as you go. Um, but he also, you know, he adheres to a, a lot of his stuff is just a repeat of of Ignatius Donnelly in particular. And Donnelly did the exact same thing in Atlantis, the Antediluvian World, which is a text that has a, an enormous impact on what we think of as Atlantis today. The, the myths or the stories, I should say, the theories about Atlantis today, as much as people say Plato, a lot of what is talked about today isn't based on Plato so much as it is on Donnelly and Blavatsky and Edgar Cayce. And, and Donnelly did the same thing. He wrote this entire book saying, you know what? I know that Atlantis is real. Here are 13 reasons I know Atlantis is real, but I haven't found the evidence. So you guys go find the evidence for me. And, and Hancock is, you know, he's not even the only person who does this, but it's definitely what he's doing as well. I, I think that we, uh, we, we need to have a, uh, some sort of like a, a special sound or alarm that goes off every time somebody says Blavatsky. <laughs> it's, it's always Blavatsky. Blavatsky. <laughs> That's what I say. Like, it's always like Blavatsky. Like in Pee-wee's Playhouse, when they say the magic word. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. It, it always comes back to Blavatsky. It really does. It really does. And you know, Blavatsky got her stuff from so many people before her, but it just today's stuff always kind of comes back to her. She was a really important transitionary point. Yeah, she was heavily inspired by people who came before her, but she mm-hmm. really became this sort of um, refracting lens or something, you know, that that yeah. has sent all of this stuff to us in its current form. Yeah. She's responsible like for the way it's point. shaped now. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Brother 12, who I just mentioned previously, who a lot of my research is focused, the historic side of my research is focused on Brother 12 and the Aquarian Foundation. Huge Blavatsky fan. He talks about Blavatsky all the time. And a lot of Blavatsky's knowledge is claimed to come from these tablets found in Atlantis or written in Atlantis. So Mm -hmm. it always comes back to Blavatsky and it always comes back to Atlantis. I, th- I think that's that's something that also strikes me about Hancock is that even though he doesn't you know, he doesn't specifically drop her name, the what he does do is because he is so fixed on working from his conclusion toward you know toward the evidence, that it makes me wonder where his conclusions came from and where where mm-hmm. you know what inspired him to to come to the you know to have these ideas in the first place mm-hmm. because he has almost a a religious fixation on this. And he and he's mm-hmm. talked in other places about the you know it's not just finding Atlantis or finding this evidence of this lost civilization or pulling you know putting together these pieces of this puzzle that have been that have been thrashed by geology in the last thirteen thousand years. It's that those the people who lived before you know that were that had built that society and you know and that was that was destroyed. They had this secret knowledge. And they, it was, and they were keeping that knowledge and then they, and that allowed them to, you know, have some idea that this was coming, but not really know what to do about it evidently. And it's that knowledge that it seems like is really what's driving him. Like, well, if I can just find the thing or, you know, or if Mm -hmm. I can just keep talking about the thing enough. And Mm -hmm. in some places, I think this is largely his, his appearances on Joe Rogan because it's such a, uh, uh, an amenable audience for him. Uh, talking about DMT, but this is what he's talked about with with psychedelics: is that you can make contact with these people who are a very close analog to the ascended masters that that Blavatsky has mentioned, mm-hmm. and that you know you can yeah. somehow gain access to whatever this secret knowledge is. But he also never describes what that secret knowledge might be like, or you know, in any particular way, like what it might entail, what you learn. The yeah. I, I, sometimes I kind of get like come to the end of myself with this stuff. And I wonder like, okay, so what's next? Like once you identify this stuff, it's the, when you, when you're dealing with this very, um, this very, uh, I mean, it's all these pseudos, you know, but it is definitely a pseudo intellectual, uh, trait to, 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 to work the way that Hancock does. What do you think the implications for, for the prevalence of these ideas out in the world running around might be? Um, I mean, that's a big question. And and certainly pseudoarc does get absorbed into other big conspiracy movements like QAnon. Um, there's a lot of pseudoarc that has been absorbed into certain QAnon communities as well. Um, and it's just, yeah, you know, it's hard to, to even sort of think about what the big implications are, because it is so unknown. Things are always changing so quickly. Um, a conspiracy theory is, you know, in one way one day and then it's something completely different the next day and trying to figure out what caused that switch why did it switch is is hard when they're constantly switching and that's i think to to think about the implications in the bigger world that's what we need to be focusing on is trying to figure out the whys of of why did it change suddenly or why is this person bringing this in it's just you know i think there's so much happening in the world right now um People are just looking for any sort of reassurance, any sort of answer, or explanation that is better than 
the the truth of it to I think that's a big part of it. I mean, the world, lots going on and the reality of it kind of sucks. There are a lot of things about the world right now that really, truly suck. And people just want a better explanation um, because it's hard to accept what the actual explanations are. And these all of these different conspiracy theories, pseudo histories, pseudo archaeologies just kind of continue to add more into that. You know, this is something that uh, that I've come across you saying in the past, like talking about how this has affected things in 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 historical periods as well, and how conspiracy theories have been used or really weaponized in in different periods of history. You've talked about how they were used in Nazi Germany um, by mm-hmm. by Himmler, and would mm-hmm. you mind talking about that a little bit? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, again, a lot of that comes from Blavatsky and Theosophy um, and her ideas of the the history, the evolution of the history of the world and Aryans being the Aryan root race, as she called it, being just this incredible race of people um, that descended from Atlantis. And Atlantis in theosophy is a very important place. Spiritually, it's it's a very evolved place. A lot of important stuff comes out of Atlantis. And so that was one of the the big occult sources that Himmler really jumped on and started started to to swing together. Um Based, you know, based on his own ideas, but based on a lot of other folks before him and around him, just constantly feeding into this idea that Aryans were descended from Atlantis, and that explained why Aryans were so incredible. Um, and so, yeah, during the war, he, uh, I guess it was just before the war, but during the war, there was this this SS unit called the Ananerb, um, which was the essentially the organization for historical research into Aryan heritage and ancestry, that kind of thing. And they uh, employed a lot of historians, they employed a lot of archaeologists, and in part, they sent out for uh, folks out to engage in archaeological uh, research and excavations to find proof of, of Aryans and where Aryans were around the world. But also, they were trying to find Atlantis, because that was the Aryan homeland. So Atlantis is a big part in a lot of far-right that comes down kind of from this Nazi use of it. Um, and that was actually one of the things I was reading up on earlier on this one particular far right website. This guy is a big, he writes about archaeological evidence for Aryans and and a little bit for Atlantis as well. Um, it gets pulled in there, but mostly he talks about ancient evidence for Aryans. And he praises Hancock's work <laughs> all the time. He cites it in a lot of his work, claiming, you know, Hancock is talking about this ancient advanced civilization and in reality he's talking about the Aryans that's what this other author always argues and one of the things he pointed out in a particularly awful book of his um, is that one of the reasons he was drawn to Hancock's work is because Hancock has drawn from a lot of national socialist archaeological work as well Um, so yeah it kind of all gets it's wrapped up all this historical terribleness gets wrapped up into contemporary terribleness involving archaeology. You know, I've even had this guy send me just this ridiculously long email about Atlantis and arguing with me about, uh, I can't even remember what he was referencing now, something I had written about the history of Atlantis. Where do today's idea of of Atlantis come from? And ultimately, in there, he was like, you know, we need to stop talking about Nazis. Get over the Nazis. <laughs> National socialism wasn't bad. Get over the Nazis. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> and every once in a while I get follow-up emails about it, but it's just, 
Yeah. I have to ask, did that, did that email have include a section about the, the, uh, the world being more complicated than you think it is? <laughs> they always do. Okay. Yeah. Because I, when I was you know, just reading some things that you had written, I came across a, uh, a review you did for a comic about Atlantis and. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's the one. Okay. So this really might be the same thing. I think he published that on his website, his email to you. He did. Yeah, because I, I yep. came across that email and I was reading it and it was just, how many, I mean, how much time can you spend in a single, in a single email apologizing for Nazis or minimizing right? them, you know, minimizing the contributions yeah. of Himmler in relation, you know, and that, oh, Hitler didn't take him seriously. And like, where are you even going with this? Like, why, why are you yeah. spending the time on this in the first place? You, you wait a minute, you're going to, the, the voice of reason here is Hitler. That's the one who didn't, yep. you're, you're saying like, well, Hitler didn't take Himmler seriously with the, with his theories. And like, he thought they were, they were ridiculous. Hitler is the one that you're, you're using for your, yep. your touchstone here. I, I recently saw a documentary on uh, just this topic. I believe it was called Raiders of the Lost Ark. I, I'm not sure if you folks know that one. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, the thing is, you, you don't really want to hunt out these things with Nazis because you get your face melted off. That's really what I came away with. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> so yeah, exactly. Another one that's really popular with the uh, with the far right is, I mean, in this case, it's actually a little bit more, or at least at one time, it was thought to be more credible. It's the Salutrian hypothesis. Mm. Yes, that was that was serious work. It was meant to, you know, mm -hmm. it was it was it was actual inquiry. It was it was a you know a, a reason. It was reasoned out. Doesn't seem to be the case. And what you do when it's not the case is you let it go. <laughs> yes, yes. Again, it's this idea of you don't find anything conclusive to support this hypothesis of yours. So, you know, it's time to maybe if you're so insistent on continuing to search, continue to search, but you have to move beyond that. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, yeah, the, the Salutrian hypothesis is um, it's definitely something if you're going to Google the Salutrian hypothesis, make sure you have your safe search on. Because, you know, I can Google Atlantis for the, the majority of the results that come back. They're, they're mostly fine. Salutrine hypothesis, you Google that and it will take you right to the white nationalist websites. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it came about, it first came about, I think it was in the 30s and it was discredited pretty quickly. And then in the 90s, it made a comeback with these two particular archaeologists who were pretty well-respected archaeologists. Um, and it very quickly got jumped on by the far right because it's this idea of potentially Europeans coming to the Americas being here first. So, you know, of course they're going to be frothing at the mouth for that one. Um, and it sort of just kept progressing and getting worse. There was a documentary on discovery channel at some point in, I think it was the 2000 sometime between 2000, 2010, if I remember correctly, um, about the Salutrine hypothesis, and it featured all white actors. And we know that, you know, from from research that the folks in the Salutrine um, areas and or who were part of the Salutrine culture at, at that time period were were not necessarily white people. But this documentary used only white actors, and that just threw a ton of fuel onto the fire. Then, uh, of course, you have archaeologists starting to critique these appropriations of the, the Salutrian hypothesis, which feeds into that, again, that idea of stigmatization. 
But then you also have the problem of the some of the proponents of the the more contemporary proponents of the theory not wanting to critique it. Um, the the far right uses there was a, another documentary that came out a few years ago on CBC, which is a a big Canadian broadcaster on a very well respected program, and for some reason they decided to do a documentary about the solution hypothesis and is it possible? So. Uh, a lot of archaeologists right away critiqued it. I critiqued it. And I was like, I don't think this is a good idea, especially if you're not willing to discuss that use of the, the theory and, and condemn it, really condemn it. And there was a newspaper article um, published about the, the theory or about the documentary. And they interviewed um, the director and they interviewed one of the archaeologists who was in it. And he basically said that the archaeologist basically said that the way people use it for racist purposes and these far right forums was not his problem. And I was like, well, it kind of is. If you're not <laughs> at least willing to say, no, that's bullshit. Um, th that's part of the problem. And then the, uh, the director, of course, she didn't want to address it because she didn't want to basically divert any energy to dealing with that. Cause there's this idea, if you just ignore it, it'll go away. And we know that is not true at all. So yeah. And it, it's still a theory that's very popular. You know, there was a very popular white nationalist novel written about it. It's in uh, white supremacist websites. It comes up quite frequently. I've seen it in some of the manifestos. Sometimes it gets um, equated to or, or mentioned in conjunction with Atlantis. Sometimes it's standalone, but it, it is very popular in those spaces. Similar to what we experience with Joe Rogan, where he presents himself as just having anybody on the episode. Just anybody can can come onto the show and it's no problem. And the critique of him is that he's platforming far right individuals, people with not only ideas that are absurd, but ideas that perpetuate and proliferate these sorts of white supremacist ideologies and not just white supremacists, but we can go on mm -hmm. the the same sort of thing is happening with that director where they're saying, not my problem, I'm just talking about it, and intentionally not mentioning the uncomfortable part that really needs to be included if we're going to neutralize this and simply just talk about it. In order to just talk about it, you have to actually include the parts that you don't want to talk about. Yeah, you have to give it context, and you need to really make things clear. And if you're, you know, a positioning yourself as a, a centrist um, because you're like, well, you know, free speech, people should be allowed to say what they want to say. Um, what you're saying essentially is that their ideas are, are worth talking about. These ideas that go on to inspire hate and inspire harm, inspire worse um, is something that's worth talking about. And I, it's not like, unless you're willing to actually condemn and say, no, man, this is you know, going to get people killed. It has killed people or hurt people. There's no point, or I don't think it's a very good idea to, to have it on. And it's, there was this great little article by Rox, I think it was by Roxanne Gay a few years ago, talking about the difference between censorship and curation when you have a platform. And curating your platform is basically saying that, you know, I'm not going to stop you from saying the, these terrible things. I'm just not giving you my platform to use to say them. I'm curating my platform in a particular way where it cannot be used for you to go and spread your your stuff because you can still say what you want to say. 
uh, in anywhere else, but you can't say it on my platform. And I think that a lot of people get that idea of curation and censorship confused. And again, you know, criticism and censorship confused. It Criticism is not censorship. Uh, curation is not censorship. And we need to, people who do have platforms um, need to keep that in mind. You, you've talked a, a bit in other places about discovery paranormalism. I really want to hear uh, how this ties in with Graham Hancock, because you've mentioned mm -hmm. it a few times in, in other places. And it seems like a really connected thing to conspiracy theories like mm -hmm. Graham Hancock's ideas, but yeah. many more. Yeah, yeah. So it's um, it's something that I learned about through a couple of other archaeologists I know who have talked about pseudo-archaeology for a long time. They were the ones who really put forward incorporating this idea of discovery paranormalism. And that comes from, um, I think they're sociologists at Chapman University. They they used to run a, a survey every year, the Chapman, Sur Chapman Survey of American Fears. And they've also written this very excellent book called Paranormal America. Um, and they talk about, they define paranormalism as ideas that are not um, validated by uh, religion or science. So they kind of fall in, in these middle spaces, these gray areas. That's paranormal. And they talk about enlightenment paranormalism and discovery paranormalism. Enlightenment paranormalism is basically exploring these ideas to better yourself. Um, discovery paranormalism is discovering the, these ideas or, or uh, sort of chasing these ideas because you're trying to find the proof. It's, and that's where you get all these like adventure style shows. Um, I always think of the adventure style shows of these guys going out there and to, to find the proof talking to all these people or, you know, spending a night in a haunted building um, <laughs> with all this equipment. And <laughs> Skinwalker Ranch, Oak Island. Skin it, exactly, exactly. They're like perfect examples of just this like desire, this drive to be the first one to find the proof or be the person who finds the proof. Always kind of trying to find the proof. And that's what discovery paranormalism uh, refers to. And that's what I, why I incorporate it into sort of my, working definition in my research world of how I define pseudo-archaeology, including this element of discovery paranormalism, because that's kind of like a, almost like a formula for these books and these shows and these YouTube videos and, and podcasts and whatnot is just trying to find the proof. I've noticed that, that a lot of the pseudoscience and a lot of the pseudo-archaeology folks tend to like the, the, the idea of saying that everyone else is really just closed minded. They don't have an open enough mind and they're, they're, they're stuck in their dogmas and they're, they're stuck in their orthodoxy and, and they're just rejecting the truth. And so, <laughs> and that just, it, it creates again, yep. a positive feedback loop. Like we were saying earlier, it, it creates that positive feedback loop, but they also want to have yeah. this kind of renegade maverick narrative about them. That really ties in. You could see it in all the History Channel uh, documentaries and, and Discovery Channel and, of course, the new Netflix show where it opens with nobody believed him. All of the scientific community was mm -hmm. opposed to him because he wanted to tell the truth. And it's like, well, or he was full of shit. You know, one of these is more likely than the other. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. That's, you know, I encourage everybody to read Michael Barkin's work on um, stigmatized knowledge. It's like very influential in, in many different arenas, but especially for me, um, yeah, looking at this, these claims of being rejected or suppressed because we're strictly adhering to orthodoxy or we're being paid by the government or, you know, we don't want our debt, our reputations to be damaged. I don't have a reputation to damage. First of all, um, I'm <laughs> disagreeing with this. I'm criticizing this based on the, the information being presented, the methods being used, the, the alleged evidence being put forward. Um, you're the, the irony of these guys is that they, or these authors, not just guys, I gotta stop saying that. Not just guys. Um, these these authors, these YouTube videos, these pseudo-archaeological proponents or creators, they they just disparage academia all the time. You know, academics are just the worst possible beings, but they're also so desperate to be accepted <laughs> by academics and be accepted by academia. Um, and so it's just like, okay, well, I will read your work. I will look at the evidence that you've presented. I will look at your methods and how you came to these conclusions based on the information you have here, just like the academics do. Um, and I, I'm, I, it's not conclusive. It's not convincing of, of the theory you're putting forward. There's a lot of gaps missing. Well, all of a sudden, I'm now part of the problem. I'm suppressing. I'm censoring. And it's like, but no, you, you wanted me to be open-minded and to read what you've presented. And I have. I just I, I disagree with it because you're not conclusive enough. It's just it's this constant back and forth, back and forth. The idea that uh, that if you don't take my idea that um, that that Romans traveled to California or <laughs> something like that, then then that means that you're shutting me out of academia. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's just no. It's I'm welcoming you in, and I'm treating you just like academics treat the work. Um, and I'm, that's also not to put academics on a pedestal, or academia on a pedestal. There are certainly many issues in academia. But if you want to be accepted by academia, then you also have to accept the the methods of verifying information or, or the process of verifying information. Um, that's just there. And it's also not to say that there's no room for challenge to those methods either. Certainly, there are things that can change. But, you know, if I'm reading your work, and it's not conclusive. I'm going to say that. And mm -hmm. it's not censorship. This week I was reading Magicians of the Gods and also watching the, the new Netflix mm -hmm. special. And I was doing these two things mm -hmm. at the same time. <laughs> so it, it was almost it was almost the the equivalent of uh, I want to be able to say the book was better at the end of this, but I won't be able to tell because I'm reading both things at the same time. He he it, it, the Netflix special is exactly the same thing as uh, uh magicians of the gods his his newer of the his his sequel if you yeah. will after go blacky tepe and he yeah. repeats the same stuff in in the netflix film just in a different order of it but in the opening few chapters just like in the opening of the netflix special it just really goes on about how archaeologists hate this guy and he's just so victimized he is it is the worst thing and I and I took note of his favorite words while I was reading this and watching this. He oh likes boy. orthodox, mainstream, heretical doctrine, mm -hmm. uh, uh, pariah, outcast. Doggedly was a weird one. He really uses that one oh, a lot. Uh, <laughs> ambushed, heresy, establishment, mysterious, and unexplained. 
which are all of the favorite words of the History Channel in Ancient Aliens. It 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 is it is a one for one. But as yeah. I am am reading this and watching this, I noticed that he also opens up with this this woe is me about the establishment. Anyway, here's this guy that I found who is in academia, who has a PhD, and I want to spend several pages talking about his credentials and how he kind of agrees with one portion of what I say. Exactly, exactly. It's just that that desperation to be accepted, um, but only on his terms. <laughs> and it has to be absolute. It, 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 there, yes. is no, there is no room at all for partial acceptance in one area, but rejection of something else. It has to be complete yeah. acceptance. Uh, that's, how, that's how it was with, uh, with Robert Schock and Hancock. Mm, mm-hmm. He loved Robert Schock as soon as he got confirmation that the Sphinx was – the erosion was was a result of water r- erosion, yeah. and then he dropped him as soon as Shock didn't confirm that uh, the what the the what what Hancock was calling a megalithic structure off the coast of Japan was in fact man made, yep. and that Robert Shock yep. thought it was na- a natural formation. Yep, I really enjoyed the uh, well. There, there's two Horizon uh, BBC Horizon uh, uh, shows uh, on Hancock and his ideas. I think the the first one was awesome because it was about his ideas, but it was actually talking mostly to people who are working in those areas and are specialists in those areas, which you kind of need to do because of another trait that Hancock has is, you know, sort of this, uh, it's been called like a fire hose method mm-hmm. of just mm-hmm. throwing everything yep. at everybody, at, at somebody. And, and it exhausts you because you can't possibly yeah. be an expert in all these areas. And he's not yep. either. But he's cobbled together enough of a of a presentation that it can make it appear as he as if he's an expert. Yeah. And yeah. so you need to have, you know, to do a rebuttal, you need a team of people that are actually experts in those areas. And so you have, you know, geologists and archaeoastronomers and archaeologists. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In that in that show, it was just, you know, one person after another knocking down the uh, the ideas. But then, you know, of course, he sued the BBC successfully because he was not represented. Uh, he did. He was not granted equal time, which is a legal requirement mm-hmm. for television in the UK. And mm-hmm. the and so he uh, they got they had to make another one, and where he figures much more prominently. But it doesn't do him any good though, because it's one of the only times where you get serious pushback of Hancock's ideas on camera, where in person, not not. After the fact, after, you know, Hancock said something and somebody else responds, you know, this is mm-hmm. him being asked questions by a journalist who has been informed by experts in these fields and Hancock's answers on camera. Though mm-hmm. That is the first time that I, I, and one of the only times I'd ever seen it. And it's, you, you get some fantastic insights into the character of this person because mm-hmm. he seems to have no interest whatsoever in actually learning anything about any of the places that he goes. It is all confirmation. There's no new knowledge to be gained. It is just confirming what he already has intuited. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Which is why when you look at the the folks that he includes in this special as the experts or or excludes as well, like you're talking about um, ancient material culture, why aren't you including archaeologists? Oh, because they have answers that they can present that are going to contradict what you're saying. And it, it's it's a common method across a lot of pseudo arc. Um, you exclude the people who can potentially provide contradictory answers. You're intentionally 
willfully downplaying or ignoring that contradiction while also screaming that we shouldn't be ignoring you. Um, again, that irony of it, uh, you know, it's the same thing in ancient aliens. They, next time you watch ancient aliens, just keep in mind how often they mention engineers. Engineers don't know how this was built. And, you know, we spoke to all these engineers. They, they got a thing for engineers. Oh, they love it because those are experts in building things. And so exactly. if they're mystified, our greatest yeah. experts in building are mystified, then it must be aliens. Exactly. It must be somebody exactly. who's a better engineer than they are. Right. <laughs> and so they like, you know, they put all this focus on the engineers of the experts for exactly that reason. But they're not talking to archaeologists who know a lot about, you know, engineering in the distant past, because we can potentially provide answers that are going to contradict the the theory or the narrative being put forward. It's it's pretty common in, in you know, Hancock's books, Ancient Aliens, all sorts of pseudo-arc theories. It's a pretty common tactic. I might be misremembering this somewhat, but I'm going to say it anyway. The <laughs> it's always that caveat with everything I say. It's like feel free, everybody, fact check me, tell me where I'm wrong. Um, but I, I I do remember something about uh, something I came across that was along the lines of talking about different uh, professions, and it was the results results of a questionnaire, and basically there these different professional fields and their susceptibility to conspiracy theories. And of all the professions, engineers were by far the highest in susceptibility to believing conspiracy theories. And I have to, I have to think that maybe something of that has, like, if it is in fact true, you know, first off, it's a questionnaire. You know, the I, I, I didn't read it, or you know, it's like who knows if it was, if it was formulated in an accurate to get accurate results in the first place. But if it was true, it could have something to do with the fact that this is also a field that attracts very intelligent people. But there is no real scientific method here. And, you know, it's like it's it, the, the way that it is, uh, it's a, it is a different style of, of, uh, of arriving at conclusions. And so that might have something to do with it, you know, the, because it is much more, um, yeah, it is, it, is simply, it is simply different than you would find in, in, in other fields. The, but it, not necessarily that it's not intellectually rigorous because it is, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. the, the, the way that, that knowledge is, is attained is it's a different process. And I, yeah. I wonder about that. But anyway, I, I can't talk about it too much because, again, I could be <laughs> totally misremembering it. <laughs> but it also, you know, it also goes to show that I, I constantly hear this when talking about pseudo-arc or just conspiracy theories in general about, you know, it's it must be just uneducated people who adhere to it, people who don't have much of an educational background. And I, I dislike those statements for so many reasons. Um, you know, there's so many reasons why somebody might not have an advanced education um, and they still don't adhere to conspiracy theories because it conspiracy theories or conspiracism really has nothing to do with education. Mm -mm. Um, None, nothing. No, no, nothing at all. And so it's, yeah, it's interesting that- um, Or intelligence for that matter. about engineers. Yeah, exactly. Because that's nothing always the implication that is that, all. you know, that, oh, that basically, you know, dumb people are the only ones believing conspiracy theories is really what, what yeah. you know, what's, un what's underneath that, those kinds of statements. And that's a ridiculous yeah. premise on its own. Like lots of very intelligent people have believed mm -hmm. terrible things. And mm -hmm. been absolutely convinced of them many times, yeah. <laughs> many, many, many yeah. times. It doesn't take you very yeah. long to read thing, you know, to come across that an intelligent person who had horrible beliefs. Yeah. yeah. And it, it, is. it yeah. also it's, it's really you know, it has all kinds of implications, statements like that about how we quantify yeah. intelligence in the first place. And yeah, problematic. Yeah, things. exactly. 
Very problematic. Yeah, I, I really dislike those statements when people make them. It's just people got to stop saying that. We found doing this show, it's also always an epistemology problem. It's always how do you know what you know? Mm-hmm. And the, the very ability mm-hmm. to question the idea of knowledge itself is, is a real mm-hmm. weakness in our present day culture. I mean, probably many cultures, I, I don't, I don't mm-hmm. really have a survey on the subject. It, it seems to keep coming back to that problem of how do you know what you know, because that introduces the difficulty of mm-hmm. which experts do you trust if you do trust experts or do you mm-hmm. distrust academia carte blanche mm-hmm. or, or is it going to be I agree with the academics who happen to uh, satisfy my my needs for this worldview and it always keeps coming back over and over again to mm-hmm. those same problems yeah I see um, like you know a lot of my colleagues talk about it's it's been an issue for a long time really how do we define what pseudo-archaeology is as a concept. And you'll see within archaeology, there are many different folks who have many different definitions. And one that I've seen a few times is, you know, scientific versus non-scientific archaeology. That's the definition, the defining line. And it bothers me because it excludes the many different ways of knowing. And not all ways of knowing are scientific or at least adhere to Western scientific methods. Um, And I think it's a disservice to just brush those all off and consider those all within pseudo-archaeology when there are very many, you know, alternative archaeologies that are uh, are valid and and worth exploring. Um, it's, it's like you say, it comes down to this idea of how do we know what we know um, and being sort of encompassing of, of the many different ways of knowing without excluding based on kind of elitist and gatekeepy um, ideas at times. I, I think of the the terracotta warriors in in uh, China, where there were stories in that region of these terracotta warriors existing, and it wasn't taken seriously for a long mm-hmm. period of time until they found the terracotta warriors, which is this very impressive and 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 massive uh, feat mm-hmm. of human activity, and it. it both lends to people like Graham Hancock when they want to look at different stories that are being told uh, where it may simply be folklore or, or telling some kind of an allegory uh, like Plato. And, uh, and, and then we, he, he can justify some of it by saying, well, look, sometimes these stories turn out to be true. And maybe the wording is a little bit different or there's some cultural mm-hmm. nuance that that creates a communication barrier, but they turn out to be true. And then use that to go back and say that all sorts of different things from folklore are definitely true because they happen to occur in different areas, perhaps independently of each other. But at the same time, there's something to be said the other mm-hmm. way around, which is the terracotta warriors did definitely exist. So... It kind of goes both ways. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. There are many cases of, um, you know, the difference between conspiracy theory and a conspiracy is that a lot of folks talk about a conspiracy is something that we later learn, you know, did actually happen. There are many examples of that, which is why, yeah, it's not to brush off. Like we shouldn't be closed minded to these alternative ideas and these alternative theories, but we need to weigh them on what is being presented and what is being presented is not conclusive of the theory that they are allegedly um, tied to. 
and and yeah, you know, thinking about um, an example, flood myth that comes up all the time. Well, you know, cultures around the world all have a flood myth. Uh, so therefore, they're all talking about Atlantis and the sinking of Atlantis. <laughs> People live near water, like around the world. That's what we do. Exactly. Water Is it a mystery that they would have a flood myth in Mesopotamia? They flooded right? all the time. And, exactly. and it was not, and it wasn't even, you know, it wasn't like it was in the Nile Delta where it was this regular thing seasonally. It was totally yep. irregular in, in between the Tigris and the Euphrates. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it was catastrophic. It wiped out where mm-hmm. everybody was living. And then you mm-hmm. tell stories about that James for generations Scott to come. James talks about that quite a bit. And exactly. 2,000 years later, we have Gilgamesh. And then 5,000 <laughs> years later, somebody digs it up and now we learn all about it. Yeah, yeah. People live near water. It's people have always sort of settled down in areas near water, um, predominantly in areas near water where they can access water more easily. So it makes sense. You're going to have a lot of flood myths going around and people describe these flood myths with their understandings of the world. And part of the problem is that, you know, oral histories are extremely valid. Oral stories are extremely valid. Um The problem with a lot of these shows is that they're taking these oral stories or these oral histories and spinning it and essentially, you know, weaponizing it against the descendants of the people who who have those histories, who are sharing those histories, because now all of a sudden it's not their history anymore of, uh, you know, their city being wiped out by flood. It's suddenly the history of some ancient, often light skinned um, highly advanced civilization that is related to this flood or was wiped out by this flood. And that's the that's the bigger problem is the way that people's own histories are being stolen from them, pulled apart. So you're tearing out all this context, filling it in with these new narratives to weaponize it against people. And really robbing them of their own history, you know, of their own their own cultural relevance for for, you know, and the way that they they see themselves in relation to the world. Mm-hmm. This is not the type of knowledge that that requires testing. These mm-hmm. these are the things people are saying. That mm-hmm. that's it. <laughs> it doesn't need to be. Yeah. It's it's imperious to try to validate it or 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 invalidate it. Yeah. Yeah. I recently I was invited to give a presentation at a global heritage crime conference and talking about pseudo archaeology um, and the pseudo archaeological um, project by a, a particular group of Mormons in the States. And um, one of the things I was trying to point across is that, yes, to, you know, go and, and steal from these sites, steal physical belongings from these sites or to damage these sites absolutely is a theft of history. But I'm trying to point across that using words to essentially steal intellectual history is also a theft of history. And mm-hmm. so we need to consider these YouTube videos and books and shows as just another form of a a theft of stolen history. They're not Lamanites. The undercurrent (laughs) in all of these includes with ancient aliens and Von Donnegat and and the rest of the lot is that these people could not have possibly done this. I mean, and you, 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 you hear it from Hancock where he's, he's saying, well, these pyramids came out of nowhere, and then it turns out they didn't come out of nowhere, and it was actually, uh, you have a bunch of adjacent sites with earlier versions of pyramids, and it turns mm-hmm. out that pyramids are just a, mm-hmm. a great way to build a building that you want to be tall. And then it, I, in his, in yeah. his uh, Magicians of the Gods book, in the earlier chapters of it, he comes right out and says, uh, talking about the reliefs in, in Gobleki Tepe. And, uh, and when he's discussing them, he said, it was really curious 
that they had these bags in their hand. And also, I saw this in another monolith where they had bags in their hand. And it's like, it doesn't mean that there's a JC Penney's in every one of these countries. It just means that bags <laughs> have been around for a while. Yeah, exactly. People are capable of independently coming up with essentially the same thing, right? Because people around the world are going to be moving materials. People around the world are going to be constructing different things. It, it kind of seems likely that they're at some point in time, people are going to come up with similar ways of moving materials and construction things. And it, it, it doesn't mean that it's all linked back to this ancient, highly advanced civilization who ancient alien theorists will tell you it's extraterrestrials. And uh, everybody else will say it was either Atlantis or some other civilization that sounds identical to Atlantis, but isn't Atlantis. Right, it's exactly. all the same theories yeah. with its different spin on them. Um, and they all, yeah, they're all predominantly or overwhelmingly focused on the histories of of racialized peoples around the world. And that's the big problem as well, telling these people that you weren't capable of doing it yourself. You either weren't smart enough or you didn't have the technology. So someone else had to have done it. Meanwhile, using the the pyramids as an example, they're arguing, well, it just came up out of nowhere. They're just ignoring all the context around it. They've pulled that one piece out. Uh, and they're just ignoring all the context around it to make their point. I know I you know covered this area, but I, the I always look at I always wonder at least, and I try to try to look at what the motivation to do that would be. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think debunking is an incredibly important job, but I also wonder what the motive is to 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 create this in the first place. I mean, Hancock is yeah. obviously not an unintelligent person. No, just putting together the damn books. They're like six hundred pages. Some of these. They're huge. And collecting all of this material and arranging it in such a way to lead to this, you know, at least the possibility of the outcome that he's that he's trying to, you know, he's trying to where he's trying to arrive. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of work. It's not easy. Mm -hmm. mm -mm. But why is he doing it? <laughs> like mm -hmm. what, what is the yep. what is the motive here? And <clears throat> the way that he is also just so casually will drop things that he, and and completely ignore things that he uh, conclusions he held very dearly years earlier in in exchange for whatever new thing he wants everybody to focus on he dropped the face on mars yeah that one's gone and you yep. know the he dropped uh, his two predictions that the world was going to end and mm -hmm. he dropped the uh, he dropped the uh, lost civilization being located in Ant in antarctica yeah because there was just there was no way. I mean, he made a really funny comment. I think it was in that uh, the 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 remake of the Horizon uh, uh, show, and he said that uh, that his his theories do not require him to rewrite the fundamental laws of geology. <laughs> <laughs> once once the four hundred thousand year old ice core samples were were uh, analyzed, and <laughs> like and he had nowhere to go anymore. You know the <laughs> yep yeah it's true but. That is something that's interesting too. The when I when I was in school, I had a uh, <clears throat> I, I had a uh, geoarchaeology class, and mm -hmm. it was co-led by uh, by uh, one of our um, one of the professors in the archaeology department, and then somebody from geology. Mm -hmm. And I this guy like he kind of cornered me one time, this geology oh. professor, and started talking about the um, the what is it the the, the pre-Reese map. 
Is that the one that oh, was? Oh, yep, yeah, the Piri Reese map. Yeah, yep. the Piri Reese. That's right. That is 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 a European copy of I think a Persian original or something like that. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. and and it and it it claims to show Antarctica without the ice. Okay, it's so always Antarctica. This has to be nonsense. <laughs> this absolutely can't be true. But this was a geology professor that was telling me about like how into this he was. Yeah. <laughs> like, yep. <laughs> Which go, again goes I mean, to he's show trying to anyone's me, susceptible. Like while I'm in college. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And you know, the Perry Reese map makes an appearance in uh, the new Netflix show. Yeah. It is brought yeah. up. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, you can't. He'll drop something, but not too, too far away. It's always just there. But also, you know, he drop, he might drop something or these authors might drop something. But there are a lot of other people who aren't going to drop it. And they're right. going to continue to use exactly it. This it. idea of, um, yeah, this idea of, of an advanced civilization basing its home in Antarctica has not gone away at all. It's extremely popular still um, within the, the conspiracy pseudo-arc world. It's, it's always brought up. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of these folks, too, thinking about Hancock as an example, again, for a moment, he might drop something. But unless he's also actively speaking out about why he dropped it, maybe he dropped it for a very legitimate reason. Make that clear. Um, help other folks drop it as well. Don't let it just sort of live on in perpetuity. Um, yeah. Again, I think it's because he doesn't see himself as part of a community of people that are individually and collectively all have a similar project of arriving at some accurate understanding of the past. He sees himself yeah. as, as this, this, you know, this loner, this rogue that's, that's out mm -hmm. there out, you know, by himself leading the way. And you're just supposed to follow him wherever he wanders. Yeah. You know, that's, that's, yeah. it doesn't, doesn't matter where he goes. He can drop and, and, you know, I forgot that the map made it a reappearance in ancient apocalypse. The, the, you know, it, that directly contradicts the thing that he said 20 years ago when he did the Horizon show, where, you know, mm -hmm. after being confronted with 400,000 year old ice core samples, which show that Antarctica has been covered in ice for a really long time, then he's, you know, he, but he's right out there with the map again, as if the map mm -hmm. shows something that the ice core sample wouldn't. Mm -hmm. We're supposed to believe the map more than the ice core sample. Yeah. It's fascinating how he'll just drop stuff and he doesn't really have any allegiance to 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 any broader ideas. It's really just his agenda. Yeah. Sean and I were interviewing uh, Carl Mamer uh, in an episode about uh, the air Nazi. Mm -hmm. oh, what was what was the what was his name? Uh, the the UFO. Ernst Zundel. Ernst Zundel. Yeah. 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 Are Ernst you thinking about Zundel. Bird? He oh. was a he was a neo-Nazi in Canada. And he, oh, uh, he, he ran, a, he was eventually deported and ended up living in Tennessee for a while. And then he went back to Germany for a while and, but, uh, it, or no, he, <laughs> yeah, he tried to run for prime minister in Canada. Oh God. Yeah. So this was all back in the early eighties. And 70s. his, oh, the fun spin, uh, was that he, uh, Zundel believed, or at least he said he believed that there was a secret Nazi base in Antarctica and that they had, mm. uh, of course, yeah. UFOs there and, and all the things that you might like. He, he even tried to get a, a plane chartered mm -hmm. and, and, and sell tickets to it. It never happened, but tried to sell tickets so that you could go visit Antarctica. <laughs> it always seems. Or he was planning oh, these boy. chartered flights on a 747 to fly from, from Canada to Antarctica. 
and basically just do like a low flyover of the ancient Nazi base. No landing. Of course. You don't get no, to get no, out. You don't, you, there's no. no landing in Argentina or something and then going over and actually visiting on foot. No, no, no. And it's people just, just love it. I mean, we, we, we get it in oh, the X-Files. We get it from the Flat Earthers. I mean, Antarctica mm-hmm. is a key character in that mm-hmm. opera. We, we have, we have <laughs> Antarctica as just the best go-to. Or uh, Stargate. Mm-hmm. I, where's, where's the other Stargate? Mm-hmm. Of course, it's in Antarctica. It's always in Antarctica. Obviously. Yeah. You know, Antarctica, it's a difficult place to get to. And it's, that, you know, it. for us today, it's a yeah. hard place to get to. It's a hard place. If you get there... You can't exactly just go out for these epically long on the land expeditions, which is probably part of why Antarctica is still so popular. Nobody can go there to confirm anything or contradict anything either. Uh, yeah, it represents that spot on the old maps where where the dragons yeah. are, because yeah. you can't you can't go there and and verify any of these claims or just or or you know completely dispute them. The uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it is going to be that way for for some time still, I'm sure, with Antarctica because it's the really the only place oh, they yeah. can go now with these things. Yeah. You know, the like yeah. some of the, you know, some of the Atlantis stories fixated on North America for a while. And but, mm-hmm. you know, we all that ground's been covered now. It's not here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like and mm-hmm. then it was, you know, South America for a while. Well, you know, we're we're everybody's all over that place too. So, it's not there. It's true. And, you know, after watching um, Ancient Apocalypse, one another location I became concerned about was actually Serpent Mound in Ohio, mm-hmm. uh, because in one episode, um, Hancock reads out a letter of having his permission to film in the park rejected. And he reads mm-hmm. out that, you know, the, the park was like, no, man, it's because of your theories. Basically, the park said, we're sick of your shit. And he was like, this is censorship. Um, but it's going to create, again, it's going to help create, I think, that idea of of the unknown and, and what's happening in this space. So even though it's a public park, people can go and visit the park. I, I worry about this big influx now of, of people either emailing or calling or visiting for particular reasons simply because it has now been made into this place that access is restricted to. Mm-hmm. Even though it's not really that restricted. And then he still stood outside the fence anyway, stood in the bushes <laughs> outside the fence, filming over top of his drone and, and complaining with Jeff Wilson about the evil archaeologists. <laughs> I mean, it, it it's the sort of thing is it has it is relatively funny just thinking about about him yeah. in the bushes out on the other side of the fence. But a not too dissimilar situation occurred, even though the stakes are a lot lower with Serpent Mound than they were you know, with, with QAnon and human trafficking, mm-hmm. but they, mm-hmm. ba- you know, basically the, you had people who were well-placed in as QAnon promoters calling out mm-hmm. the, the, um, the, the people, the operators of the butterfly sanctuary sanctuary in Texas yeah. and saying that this was a major, yeah. uh, a major ingress point for human, for sex slaves, for child sex slaves. Yep. That were being brought in from other countries or sometimes taken out of the U.S. to go to other countries. And, yep. okay, so they made they, they said something crazy and they did it publicly, except people actually showed up there and threatened the mm-hmm. lives of some of the people that worked at the Butterfly Sanctuary to the extent that mm-hmm. out of concern for, for the staff, they closed. Because it was such a cont- you know, it, it was such a contentious issue and yep. they were really were in danger. And one of those people, I think was currently running for a U.S. representative seat 
And yeah, the and I, I forget so. what her name was. I don't I'm not I don't think she won, but she was in it was in it was she was currently running for a public office, like a national office. Yeah. And so sometimes these things, you know, they like I don't think that that's going to happen at Serpent Mound to, you know, to the to the parks to mm-hmm. the park staff, but <laughs> because the stakes yeah. are so much I don't I, I guess just yeah, less they're different heated. stakes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But the it, we're talking about you know, on the level of the Smithsonian hiding the the, the skeletons of the giants, you know, that's yeah. the level where we're talking about of government cover up, not current sex mm-hmm. trade. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. Um, I mean, slightly lower stakes, but it's. I think people still part of the problem is people still view things like ancient aliens and um, perhaps ancient apocalypse now as kind of these like really silly, goofy theories, harmless theories, you know, mm-hmm. who could possibly take seriously this idea of extraterrestrial ancestors or, you know, Atlantean ancestors. Um, we don't take it seriously, but there are many cases of pseudo-archaeology being connected to people being hurt, people being killed. Um, and so there, there is, even though it's, you know, a lesser level, but there is that concern for Serpent Mound based on what was said in the show about Serpent Mound that, and because stigmatized knowledge will draw together people from all different walks of stigmatized knowledge. So, you know, maybe the majority of the show shows audience are people in, interested in historic conspiracies, but it's still attractive to people who are interested in all sorts of other conspiracies. And depending on what they might be interested in, they might be bringing in potential more violence, more potential for harm. So it's, it's one of those things that, um, you know, I was concerned with Serpent Mound based on or thinking about like, yeah, what kind of potential threats are they going to get? Is somebody going to take it a little too far and mm-hmm. show up and, and do something? Because people have shown up at Serpent Mound before in the past to do and say various things. Um, and and just with all sorts of different things, different things like the guy who um, attacked Nancy Pelosi's husband recently. Exactly. Um, he wrote about Atlantis on his blog. Yeah. And um, the guy who blew himself up in Nashville, Tennessee, into these reptilian theories that also have pseudo-archaeological connections, the mm-hmm. Nazis in Atlantis. So there's um, lots of examples of and that, enough examples, I Chansley, should say, to show right? that the Didn't Jacob Chansley write a little bit about there. Atlantis as well? Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm actually writing a paper right now, desperately trying to finish this paper right now about pseudo-archaeology and QAnon, and it's uh, quite a bit of it is focused on him, and he was into um, predominantly like ancient alien type narratives because of his whole starseed thing, um, but also yeah, Atlantis pops up in there through that New Age side as well, um, and uh, there was a guy who attacked uh, a historic site in the states uh, a couple of years ago. Now it's a historic settler site that has a ton of pseudo-arc theories attached to it about ancient Phoenicians and the sacrificial table. Anyway, this guy, this QAnon adherent, um, was so wrapped up in QAnon stuff combined with um, America and Earth, Scott Walter show America and Earth, stuff he had seen about the site in there that he went to the site with a, I think a round saw and like carved a bunch of QAnon stuff into the rocks. Um I'm assuming nobody was there at the time because you also think about what would happen if somebody is in that much of a state of mind that they're going in their frenzied, you know, carving into these rocks. What's going to happen if someone tries to stop them? 
Um, so there are, yeah, there are a lot of, of safety risks, especially in more of the, the hardcore far right stuff when you're getting into the really intense neo-Nazis and white supremacists, seeing the stuff that they say, um, the way that I know archaeologists who have been targeted by these guys who have had to have security. Um, I can't go into too much detail about it, but she did have to have security because of the way people were targeting her for um, some stuff, not pseudo-arc related, but the idea of white supremacists targeting archaeologists. Um, so there are, yeah, there is more of a cause for concern for safety purposes than I think what a lot of people realize when it comes to, to pseudo-arc stuff. Yeah, absolutely so. To make it even a bit more of a loose cannon, we're not, we're not talking about the people who are attracted to these ideas because these ideas are, are the result of calm deliberation. It, they're, these ex- ideas are exciting specifically because of the emotional component about what these ideas are saying. Where mm-hmm. I, I'm watching uh, ancient, uh, um, I was going to say ancient aliens again. It's same difference. Ancient apocalypse, aliens, <laughs> I don't know, pick one. The whole of the History Channel for the last 20 years. Whichever one of these we want, the, the whole thing moves through with this dramatic music, I, I mean, they they have to have an in-house orchestra because of how much they're just really playing into that that dramatic music and the suspense. Because it's not interesting if you don't have this emotional narrative behind it. W- meanwhile, these people who are totally divorced from reality for these models are are going to be the same people showing up at the butterfly sanctuaries. And we're not going to have a reasoned mm-hmm. dialogue about what they perceive as, you know, child trafficking or the government is controlling everything through 5g and, and th- these other sorts of things. This isn't going to be mm-hmm. a calm discussion. It, it, it is, it is uh, uh, very much a loose cannon yeah. in that respect. I mean, I, I remember in the the '90s, every other movie, every other movie or or TV series had Egypt in it, and the whole attraction was the emotional, mysterious nature of it. We had Brendan Fraser. We had uh, mm-hmm. I want to say Indiana Jones, mm-hmm. but that might have been '87. But uh, w- w- whichever it is, you know, the whole thing was that Egypt was this mysterious, emotional mm-hmm. thing that is out of touch and out of reach, like, like Antarctica. Mm-hmm. And you could just mm-hmm. inject whatever emotional thing you want into that and, and have your narrative and, and run with it. They did the same thing with Stargate. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Stargate, the original Stargate was like a prime moment or an important moment in a lot of pseudo arc theories. A lot of it's derived from uh, the ancient alien stuff derived from that movie Stargate, which itself is derived from a lot of, things pop culture has enormous influence in all sorts of conspiracy theories pseudoark is is no different and pseudoark is so popular in pop culture too that it kind of is this constant loop of reinforcement of of people come to it because they have these existing these pre-existing ideas and what they're seeing in pop culture fictional or not is reinforcing those while also potentially creating new beliefs for new people it's it's really all summed up in Mulder's office poster i want to believe yeah Exactly. I was actually reading, um, where is it? Just today, I came across this quote. Um, I have so many things open here. It was a, a quote that somebody left or a comment, I should say, that somebody left on the bottom of a, oh, here it is. It, it's a comment somebody left on the bottom of an article 
on a white supremacist website. And the article was about Atlantis. And this person says, I cannot prove Atlantis. I don't need proof. I believe in national socialism and so on and so forth. Uh, it says, and Atlantis makes sense if I accept national socialism. So basically, it's, you know, because they say it, I believe it. But it just it's such like a perfect example of this idea of matter of faith over matter of proof. He doesn't need the proof. The stigmatization probably helps, but because he believes in something else and they said, hey, this might be something he therefore believes in that, too. You've talked before about uh, in, in a podcast that I heard, I don't remember which one. You mentioned that one way out of this hole to a certain degree is possibly possibly having an explanation that talks about where these come from rather than simply countering and, and explaining the, the origins of some of these ideas that when mm -hmm. they're out in the light of day from their roots, from their, in their original form, really, really do a lot. We talked about that in, in our zombie JFK mm -hmm. episode. Uh, our, our, our negative, negative 48 and, and, <laughs> but negative 48. Uh, I, I mean, oh, uh, gosh. Sean, you and I, we, we were reading, um, Dawn of Everything mm -hmm. and, uh, and in that we, we kind of came to some of the similar, uh, a similar mm -hmm. conclusion, which is, uh, uh, by the way, have you, have you read Dawn of Everything or, or have you, have you heard of this? I, I yeah, I know of it. I know of the book. Um, I have not read it. I've, to be honest, I've seen some pretty valid criticisms of the book, which have yeah, kind of turned likewise. me off of it. But I also, yeah. but, uh, yes, we were either way. Yeah. It, it doesn't really matter. Yep. Yeah, there are definitely some some very some valid sounding yeah. criticisms. I, of it. It, we um, we did conclude though that part of the problem is perhaps that there is this vacuum that is not being filled with exciting spokespeople in in archaeology and anthropology. Uh, not that there aren't mm -hmm. exciting people, but for some reason, they're not getting the airtime and that excitement is not being promoted in the same way that mm -hmm. we have Hancock out there. And uh, uh, th that is mm -hmm. really part of the messaging problem in, in archaeology that we see today. Yeah, I think that's part of it. Um, it's also just really hard for archaeologists to get a show like, you know, on Netflix or... or um, you know, to be on these big, big platforms like, say, the Joe, not saying that we should be on the Joe Rogan platform, but say the equivalent. Um, we're not given the same opportunities um, as a lot of these other folks. And I think it's because a big part of the appeal is that that conspiracism. Um, people just are more interested in seeing what they view as, as like a train wreck, a slow motion train wreck. It's just that that interest. But also thinking about, you know, this Netflix series, I, I think Netflix also just in part recognized that somebody at Netflix knows how stigmatized knowledge works and knows that it's going to draw in the, a show like that is going to draw in a, a much broader audience than just the history nerds, because they know that the show wasn't mm -hmm. made for history nerds. It was made for people interested in historical conspiracies. Um, and that's, you know, it's not made for an audience interested in archaeology. It's made for an audience that just wants to see proof of of this suppressed narrative um and netflix just recognized a way to capitalize on that essentially um you know same with if you think about the way algorithms work on something like youtube for example the the conspiracy videos get much higher views which gives net youtube more money 
or TikTok, you know, the TikTok algorithm is really um, aggressive. It just pauses for half a second on something. You pause for something on, and it just keeps pumping these things out more and more. So, um, you know, archaeologists have been trying to get um, shows and, and the same type of, of platform. And, you know, so many of us are excellent storytellers. I know some archaeologists that are just fantastic storytellers. Ken Fader being one of them. Man, you could just listen to him talk forever. He's, he's just so engaging. Um, but that's just not the, the audience isn't there for it in this moment in time. You know, pop culture relies on pop culture media relies on what is popular in our society at a given moment. So if people are really interested in these conspiracy theories about Atlantis, you're going to see it in, in pop culture more often. And then that in turn keeps it popular in, in society. It's a hard cycle to break into. Do you think if archaeologists just had a good villain that maybe that they could get their next well, Netflix show? Well, you know, Graham show? Hancock says he's our villain and we don't have a Netflix show, so I, I don't really think so. <laughs> I think that, that's probably a good place to wrap it up. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Oh, boy. Uh, would, you, would you like to tell everybody where they can find you online, Steph? I, you know, I'm terminally online, even as Twitter is falling apart. I'm on Twitter. You can find me at uh, cult Archaeo. I'm over on Mastodon now at the same, um, same handle on Mastodon. And I've got a blog online as well called bonestonesandbooks.com. Those are the best places to find me. And, and when is your docu-series coming out? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Hopefully soon. <laughs> you know, I have some, some folks are very interested in learning more about uh, Brother 12. I've been approached to do a documentary about Brother 12. Um, but you know, it's, it's hard to make these things happen. So, well, I don't know if it will or not, but that would also be super cool. I, I know just mm-hmm. a smidge about the, uh, the mm-hmm. Aquarian society. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah they were I had this episode, I found out that there is a, a, I think it looks like it's a pretty big Aquarian society chapter here in Seattle. Yep. And I kind of want to visit out of morbid curiosity. <laughs> <laughs> I would be very interested in what you encounter there because one of the things I'm trying to figure out is if they have any connection to Brother 12's Aquarian Foundation, because um, they seem to be into kind of the same stuff. I don't know if they drew anything from him or not. I don't know. They mention a different guy. See, Jules, you need, you need to be Steph's man on the ground. That's right. Yeah. My eyes on the ground. Report back. <laughs> Go in mic. This That's is right. <laughs> He's got a mic. He's got a mic. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, honestly, the 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 pleasure is all on this side of the table. It, it, it's been it has been uh, really wonderful having you here. Oh yeah, it's awesome, absolutely. Well, awesome. thank you so much for for both having me on to to chat about this stuff. Yeah, I, you know, I actually um I uh, I first uh, came across you when um I think uh, it was uh, Ken Fetter. He mm-hmm. name dropped you on um, the uh, Tales from Atlantis podcast. Oh, oh, <laughs> and he mentioned you along with a, a couple of other people that are that are doing good work in this area, mm-hmm. like talking about pseudo archaeology. Oh, that's lovely to hear. Ken's such a, a great person. I've I've, ta- I've learned a lot from Ken. I believe um, it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's yeah, it's definitely something that pseudo archaeology is something that we need to talk more about. But I think also we're at this point where we need to learn about how to talk about it. Um, and that's kind of where a lot of my research goes to because I spend so much time um, researching the far right in particular, 
and spending a lot of time with far right researchers and extremists who and, and conspiracy theory researchers who have just this breadth of knowledge and, and papers on basically it, we don't really know how to make things better. It's hard to make things better, but we know how to not make things worse. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of where we're at right right now, I think, is we got to learn how to talk about these things to not make it worse. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I 100% agree with that. Yeah. Good. I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's been really lovely chatting with you guys. I've really enjoyed this. Yeah, absolutely. It's been so great. It really has been. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you, guys. All right, everyone. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening to another premium episode of Wet Wired. And to all you subscribers, thank you so much for your support. If you want to find us online, our website is wetwired.net. And you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at wetwiredpod. Until next time. Do you believe in UFOs, astral projections, mental telepathy, ESP, clairvoyance, spirit photography, telekinetic movement, full trance mediums, the Loch Ness Monster, and the theory of Atlantis? Uh, If there's a steady paycheck in it, I'll believe anything you say.